what I've believed and where I've what I've told myself this story true or not. So you're disconnected from that, and especially if the abuse happens in that Christian community that previously embodied that story for you, then you're also then disconnected from the community. So it's a double disconnection. That's Curtis Chang, former pastor and current consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School. And this is why that hopelessness is deep. It's not just a passing emotion or feeling. It's getting at the heart, the substance of what it means to have. This is episode 30 of Untangled Faith. It's also the first episode in this current season of the podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the overall themes of grief and loss. Two podcast listeners and now friends of mine, Emily and Kat, both spent some time sharing their experiences with me, and I'll be passing those stories along to you throughout this series. And because I'm not an expert, I'll also be sharing wisdom from people who understand this more than I do. Since grief isn't a particularly fun subject, I'm grateful we can do this together. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. As I was planning this season, I reached out and asked if anyone would be willing to share their experiences through this lens of grief. Kat Wilkins messaged me pretty quickly. Lucky for me, she had just been praying through the option of sharing their story in some way. Here's Kat. I grew up as a missionary kid in Asia and then moved to Canada for my later elementary years onward. And so grew up in a Christian home, not really ever a part of Southern evangelicalism or anything, right? That's been more recent years for me of discovering a very more American kind of church. Marrying a Baptist who was very deeply involved in like the SBC and Nine Marks meant that we've been married 12 years now. And pretty much for 12 years, I've been part of Baptist churches that whole time, SBC, Nine Marks. My husband did the internship with Mark Dever in DC. All that kind of the way we were seeing it or the way I was seeing it was sort of like all these stepping stones to this job that I'm going to talk about as sort of where everything went down was always pastoral assistantships and internships for my husband. So it was always like a six month to two year thing. And we knew that at some point it would be more of a permanent kind of long-term job. And so we saw it and I saw it as okay, so far I'm not fitting in super well (laughs) with these kinds of churches. Yes. The way we kind of saw it was, well, we're so glad we get to try all these different ones out because it's going to help us narrow, like, what's the type of church? What are the characteristics we want to look for? What's the type of place where we can really settle and both thrive? And so we thought we'd found it in communication with this lead pastor before we, before my husband took the job and we moved across the whole country was he was so good at seeing in both me and my husband, the very things that we felt so unseen in and to kind of call those out of us in a way that felt so life-giving and it felt so connected and sincere. And I do think there was sincerity there. And, And I don't, 
I'm not saying anything about intention, but the impact of that on us was that we were like, oh my gosh, we found it. You know, I was given very specific feedback about my vulnerability and my strength and how much wisdom that I could offer and that my therapy work is going to be such a gift and just things that I had for sure felt kind of distrusted for uh, in past communities. It felt so good. And he even said to my husband, your sensitivity doesn't scare me. I like, I'm so grateful for it. Right. So all these kind of ways that we were like, oh my goodness, this is it. We move across the country with a newborn. We bought our first house. We, you know, he signed the dotted line. Like we were so excited. And looking back, I can very easily point to almost as soon as we landed there, what was this close, close, close knit friendship that I, we felt like could develop into really close friends with the pastor. Mm -hmm wife sort of became the feeling was that I was being held at a distance that happened throughout. Like we were there for almost three years. Now we look back and we can see that even those, that affirmation was a red flag, but the really more obvious red flag started almost right away. You know where this is going, right? I mean, she's on this podcast. It's still a great reminder to hear how Kat and her husband entered into this new ministry experience with high hopes and outweigh on a limb a new house, a new baby, a new community. You don't do this unless you're bought into a particular story and community. Next, I get to introduce you to Emily. If you can picture the poster child of the Southern Baptist Convention, it would be Emily. But what do you do when you see cracks in a system you dedicated your life to? And what do you do when they seem to discard you? when you most need a spiritual family. So I would love to hear a brief like overview of your faith background. Sure. that would give the listeners an idea of where you come from and how you have ended up where you are right now. I'm sure many will be able to relate. Yeah, I know that I can answer where I came from. I'm not sure if I can answer where I am right now. Mm. I, my dad was a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor. I grew up very, very Southern Baptist, made a profession of faith at nine years old, got in theology arguments with my dad's friends in elementary school, went to Oklahoma Baptist University, worked at the biggest church camp in America for most of a decade. I was the Southern Baptist teenager slash young adult. My husband also grew up in a ministry family. Emily shared with me that until 2020, one or both of them had been on church staff for her entire adult life. So my background is very church and church life and and even denominational work is very central to sort of my whole formation. And then just in the past few years, there started to be some cracks in that. And then the past couple of years, those cracks kind of exploded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now I still believe all the things about Jesus and the Bible and the gospel and all of those things, but I don't know where to put them anymore Mm. with some of that other stuff. And honestly, like people ask me frequently where I am, if I'm going to leave the SBC, if I'm going to where we're going to go to church when we can leave our house from the pandemic again. And I really don't know. I'm kind of still in the middle of untangling it, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I personally think untangling is a perfect word. We'll hear more from Kat and Emily throughout this season. 
During the months that I was brainstorming a direction for this season, I pressed play on a new podcast. The Good Faith Podcast with David French and Curtis Chang caught my attention for some reason. A few minutes into listening to one particular episode, I knew I wanted to have a conversation with Curtis Chang. What he was saying resonated with me, and I knew these words would make a powerful impact on you as well. He was my first ask for this season. Curtis used to be a pastor. In addition to co-hosting the Good Faith podcast, he is currently a consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School. Curtis is also the founder of Redeeming Babel, whose mission is to provide biblical thinking in a confusing world, where they seek to equip Christians who hunger for ways to engage with the secular world in thoughtful and biblical ways. The thing that caught my attention first from you is what you were talking about, that loss of hope or hopelessness that people have. And so I would love if you would explain what that looks like and what you have seen in regard to hopelessness and being disconnected from story and from community. When we think about hopelessness, it can be easy to just think of this as a hopelessness as a feeling as something that is located purely in emotions. And certainly we experience hopelessness as an emotional reality. There's emotional symptoms to it. But I think it's important to dive deeper and get at actually what is the substance of hopelessness. And the way I would define it is it's something deeper than what you're happening to feel emotionally that day. Mm -hmm. But it's at a deeper level a state of being disconnected from a story and then from a community that subscribes to that story. So why, why do I say story and community and why hopelessness is a disconnection from both of these things? Well, when you think about what hope is, it's fundamentally that you believe you are part of something larger and that is mm-hmm. headed headed to someplace good ultimately. Sure. And that that's really a story that has a beginning and end and a uh, beginning and uh, an end and you're in the middle of that story somehow. Mm-hmm. And so to be hopeful is to actually have a story that you're in the middle of that you believe even as bad as things are today or this month or this year ultimately is headed to someplace good. And that of course is why the Christian story is ultimately a story of hope because it tells us that we do have a conclusion. We do have an end where all this is going to. And so hopelessness is when we've lost that story or we realize maybe that we've gotten the story wrong Mm -hmm. in some ways. and We're in a place of disorientation and trying to find story. So just being disconnected, storyless, almost certainly puts you at a place of being greatly vulnerable to hopelessness. The other thing, though, is that stories need to be told. Stories mm-hmm. need to be shared. We tell stories. We we narrate them. We and we share them. This is why community is so critical because to actually sustain a sense that we are in a story that is going somewhere, we need to have fellow story dwellers. <laughs> we need yeah. to be dwelling in the same story, enacting that story together. And this again is really what church church capital C, mm-hmm. the body of believers, is people who are formed by and dwell in a common story. And this is where why I think stories of abuse that you cover and that I think Mm -hmm. a lot of your listeners are so familiar with are so vulnerable to hopelessness is because usually that abuse is a profound dislocation, disconnection from both story and the community, right? So the Mm -hmm. story gets gets jolted because that abuse somehow 
causes you to sense, wait a minute, yeah. what's wrong here? Yeah, what, we're is, meaning makers. <laughs> yeah, is, is what I've believed and where I've what I've told myself this story true or not. So you're disconnected from that. And especially if the abuse happens in that Christian community that previously embodied that story for you, then you're also then disconnected from the community. So yeah. it's a double disconnection. And this is why that hopelessness is deep. It's not just a passing emotion or feeling. It's getting at to the heart, the substance of what it means to have hope. I can totally see how this applies to faith communities. It's a loss of both things that are just so in- integral to who we are. Is this story that I bought into and was a part of, is it true? Did the people who told me the story, did they even believe it? It's a profoundly disorienting experience. I know you've recorded a lot about your own experience with at Ramsey Solutions. How would you articulate what was the story that was being told Mm. at Ramsey? And what did you come to discover was not true about that story? And I think it's that moment of realizing that, oh, I was wrong about the story. That's a breaking point. And the story was, we exist to provide hope for people. Mm-hmm. And that is a story that is compelling. We are going to help people with their finances. And along the way, it's going to help them get hope for their lives. And we can tell them about Jesus in the process. I've had time to think more about what the story was that we were sold on. And it was certainly that mission of bringing hope to people. But I had read the literal quote, story, unquote, in the Entree Leadership book. And seeing those stated values not applied consistently was a breaking point. Either I misunderstood the story or the story was a lie. This is what we are ultimately about. But when the cognitive dissonance was really starting to be a struggle with some of the things that we saw and some some moral issues that we were concerned about, in in order to make that story work, we said, they don't know. They must not see some of these things that are happening. But then realizing that, oh, they they did. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting when I hear accounts like yours, but also a lot of uh, accounts, the most famous one currently is the Mars Hills account that, of course, everybody's listening to. And Mm -hmm. we just did a podcast with um, Mike Cosper, the producer and creator of the Mars Hills podcast. And one of the things that we talked about was just how if you're not part of that story of that particular community, like the Mars Hills story, You can feel like, well, why did people go along with it? Why didn't people see the obvious warning signs? And I think that goes to show how much we need story, right? Such that when we are confronted with even the, you know, the first evidence that the story doesn't hang together quite right. And by that, I mean, I'm not talking about the gospel story. I'm talking about the lowercase story, the version that community is advancing, that we so much need story that we can fall into the trap of trying to make the story coherent and and legible and and logical and still make sense, sensical, even in face of facts and and, uh, discoveries that seem to make that story, that seem to disprove that story, we'll still, we'll spin and tell new sort of little variations on the story just to make it hold together and just have it hold sense. I think what that tells us is the answer, I believe, is not that we live without story. We are made as human beings to need that. We are consigned to hopelessness if we reject all story in our life. It's that we have to make sure we're grounded and dwelling in the really right story, the the true gospel story that is centered around Jesus and not the subversions that, and I mean that in both terms, the subversion as in lesser versions, but also subversions 
as in the corruptions and distortions that subvert the true gospel story. There are a lot of people really struggling with different crashing and burning in in their churches, their faith communities. And I'm curious, is there a story that the white evangelical, the American white evangelical church is, is has been telling that maybe is a sub story or a subversion of a story that they've tried to get it right, but maybe it isn't exactly. There's many different versions of this. I think a lot of them, I don't know if all of them do, but I would say a lot of them have some plot element that sounds like this. If you do this, everything will turn out good for you. If you do this, you will not suffer, but instead prosper. If you do this, good things will happen for you in this life. But it's it's usually some yeah. figure that says, I don't think says, it's as overtly it. like that. Because it sounds like the prosperity gospel when you say that, <laughs> Curtis, when yeah. you say that. And most of us would say, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. But in many ways, we live and expect life to work yeah. like that. Yeah, I think the prosperity gospel works so well because it actually taps into a deep hunger that we have for like, just give me the recipe, give yeah. me the thing that if I do it, I don't have to suffer. I don't yeah. have to struggle. I will instead prosper. And, but certainly when you, you know, hear Mars Hills, it's like, you know, it was the be a man or be a true yeah. man or be a true woman as I have defined it. I be Mark Driscoll yeah. and obey and listen to me and everything mm -hmm. will turn out right. So there's, there, you know, different communities and different organizations will have different subversions of the gospel story that runs something along those lines. Yeah. Why they are ultimately a subversion of the gospel story is actually when you dig deep into it, they don't actually have a true place in the plot for the cross. Mm. Uh, because in the cross, we see, which is the decisive part of the gospel story, we see God himself suffering. We see things not working out where we see God himself in the form of Jesus himself yeah. actually suffering abuse. That's the, that's actually the gospel story. I was listening to Karen Swallow Pryor. She just started a new podcast and she had a, a co-host on with her for her first episode and her co-host had a Jewish background and her co-host was talking about how in the Jewish culture, they don't expect everything to be wrapped up in that story with a happy ending and that in our culture here, we're not comfortable with that dissonant story of things not being explained, not having a bow on it. That's really hard. And I think that's one reason why we rush into situations where somebody spells it out for us that, you know, there's a formula in some way and we wouldn't necessarily recognize it that way, but it gives us a little pass on having to think critically because somebody's already decided for us. That's right. It also removes the fundamental state of uncertainty mm -hmm. and incompletion that is just part of what it means to be in the middle of a story. Yeah. Right. If we're in the middle of a story, we do not know how it turns out. We we can believe and trust that it will turn out well in the ultimate end, in the conclusion, if we believe that this is ultimately a story of hope, as the gospel story is. But in between where we are now in the middle of the story and conclusion, what it means to be in a story is to not know all of the details. Right. Think about a mystery. Think of like a BBC, you know, mystery that that I really love. And it would be ridiculous if in minute. 15 of even a six, let's even take it a 60 minute show, much less like a six episode or nine episodes, you know, a season. But just think if, you, if it was just one of those sort of one episode mystery shows, it would be ridiculous if like 
in minute 10, some character says, oh, here's how it all works out. Here's the, here's the crime. Here's who did it. Here's how they did it. And minute 10, right? Um, and be like, wait a minute, that's it? But in actuality, we actually have a hunger for that, right? We are wanting the answers. Mm -hmm. And yet, we don't recognize, wait, we can't expect the answer in minute 10. We have to wait until the end. And what I'm saying is that as Christians, we're in minute 10, or we don't actually know which minute we're in. Yeah. But we're, we're somewhere in the middle of the story. Yet. We are in the not yet. And we're in the now and not yet, which means we haven't arrived at the conclusion. And yet, we're, we're inching forward and we're wanting the conclusion. And, and so in that state, we have to recognize we're going to be living with uncertainty. We're going to be living in a mystery at some level where we don't know exactly how this turns out, exactly all of the whodunits unraveled. We will in the end, but we can't while we're in the middle of the story. But in that state, while we're in the middle, we're going to be incredibly tempted to people who say, I've got to figure it out. I know the answer, right? We want the spoilers, right? We mm -hmm. want the spoilers. And basically, people who say to us, I've got it. You just do this and this will happen for sure. Mm -hmm. Those are like people providing spoiler. But the problem is spoilers, right? The problem is they're false spoilers. They don't actually know mm -hmm. the answer, but they're claiming a certainty and a confidence and a complete knowledge. But they're actually providing false spoilers. But, we're, but because we're so much are tempted to get the spoilers mm -hmm. that we're going to actually want to attach ourselves to, to, the, to those folks. Have you seen that play out that people are, we're in this pandemic, we're in the middle and the stories that people are hanging on to and the people that they're hanging on to that are making sense of it for them, that are giving them an easy out. Yeah. I, again, I, I think that's a really help, interesting insight, Amy, that in this pandemic, which is so full of uncertainty and so full of incomplete knowledge, even honestly among the public health officials, even among scientists, they're just figuring this out along the ways. On all sides, there can be this uh, desire to play the spoiler, right? Desire to, yeah. to say, I've got the conclusion. I, I, I've leapt to it. And mm -hmm. honestly, that can be true on the side of people who are pro-vaccine, who are scientists yeah. on the side of pro-vaccine, that they can claim a certainty that actually is not warranted or a knowledge of how the virus works because we're discovering, right? That yeah. this is an unfolding story. And at the same time, I, I would say the more, even more damaging version of those who are who would claim, I know for sure this is a hoax. And they're proclaiming it with this degree of, again, certainty, knowledge, almost secret knowledge, frankly, yeah. kind of a Gnosticism. That is very attractive when we are living in a situation uh, worldwide, as well as in our own individual lives, of great uncertainty. We will be attracted to somebody who's like, oh, they know the answer and they seem so certain. Um, yeah, and that is so much more appealing than there's so much unknown that what we know today look incomplete in a month. That isn't what we want. We wanted everyone to tell us in March of 2020, this is exactly what's going to get us out of this. It's going to take yeah. two weeks. We're going to do this and we're good to go. Being in the middle has been a really hard thing for so many people. Having that happen at the same time as people are losing faith communities. And I, and I sent this to you as one of my questions is I really feel like on all sides of all these issues in our communities, we are seeing this profound frustration and anxiety and anger. And I really feel like there's been so much loss people are dealing with, but I get this feeling that people aren't really comfortable with being sad. They would rather hang on to their anger over it, which anger is appropriate when you feel loss. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I feel like we have this collective grief that we're heading into and people aren't able to handle it very well. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I, I think grief is so critical to actually hope. 
that's something that people often don't think think there are opposites somehow. But in actuality, grief is, I think, absolutely critical to hope, at least Christian hope it is. Because what grief is to, is to say is to actually not try to make the current sadness or pain or loss go away. It is to acknowledge I'm in the middle of the story and I'm in a really hard part of the story. And it's not trying to rush past it. It's not trying to leap to some other resolution that has to wait in the future. And for all of us, for all pain and all resolution, ultimately in the Christian story, has to await resolution in the end when Jesus returns, raises the dead, yeah. redeems all, all things. And that happens in the conclusion. That's the end of the story. Until then, all of our sort of resolutions and, and ways in which we uh, try to deal with pain are all provisional. They're temporary. They are prone and vulnerable to being kind of uh, not working out fully. And so what grief is, is grief is saying, is accepting that, is accepting that and just saying, I'm in the sad part of the story. I can't make it less sad. By the way, and anger is totally appropriate, I think, in the yeah. story. But when people land on anger and rejection, that's in itself is a form of conclusion, right? That's a form of certainty is to say, ah, I know now God is like this. God's mm. going to let me down or God's out to get me. Now, I, I think we can, God's big enough to hold those feelings. But if we land on them as conclusions versus just, I feel this way, I mean, I'm going to hold that feeling. But if we land on this sort of, I, I know now you can't trust anybody or anything in the church, mm-hmm. you have to understand that's a conclusion that you're landing on and you're declaring, I've arrived <laughs> at the end. I've arrived mm-hmm. at, at the revelation right, of, of, of the story. And I think the antidote to that, to landing in a conclusive bitterness or antidote, is to, to hold on to grief. Because grief is to say, I'm feeling this way now. It's real. But I'm going to hold on to it with a hope that this isn't the final word. There's something in us that desires for justice to happen, for God to make things right. And when they aren't right, living in that not right. For my own self, I think it can be harder for me to really metabolize the sad than the mad. And so I'm trying to figure out, I'm angry because it mattered. And there's something that's not just. And Diane Langberg, Dr. Langberg says, she's a psychologist. I don't know if you've heard, she's amazing. Yeah, I've heard her on Um, the Mars Hills podcast. Yeah, she talks about trauma and she's just brilliant. And she says that the um, stages of grief are not linear. You're in denial and then you're in anger and then you're back in denial and then you're in acceptance. And then you're never going to tick off each box. We would love to be like, okay, by March 16th, we're going to be up to acceptance. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? And I love what you said about the, we don't have the resolution. We don't have the full answer to that yet. Maybe I don't love it so much as it makes sense. I see a lot of the, this frustration of our whole community grief when it comes to the pandemic is really coming out in anger towards one another. It's easy for us to forget that we are collectively grieving that person that doesn't want to do the thing that you want them to do or isn't seeing it the way you want them to see it. They're carrying some deep loss and deep sadness as well. It is hard to hold all of that at one time. Yeah, we want some outlet for to cast that grief in the form of blame or anger. And so it's totally natural. I get it. I've done it myself. I, I still struggle with that on a variety of levels. I, I do think that's right. I think we have to learn to individually and as communities hold that grief. I I know that when we talk about grieving and metabolizing grief and so forth, that can sound like psychobabble and folks are like, that doesn't sound biblical. I want to remind folks that grieving is deeply biblical. 
Yeah. That was how Jesus processed his pain and loss. If you read the passage in Gethsemane, in the Mark passage especially, it says very specifically that, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane stayed there and grieved. That was how yeah. Jesus had to actually hold that moment of his story of profound loss, of betrayal, of abuse, and an even worse impending abuse, yeah. was to actually just experience it. Interestingly enough, the Gethsemane story is really such a moving story because it is Jesus struggling to hold that grief and go through the story, even mm -hmm. though it goes through a very grievous chapter. But it also to go back to our comments about the need for story and community. It, it's a picture of Jesus doing both. Right? He's trying to hold on to the story, believing in the end the Father yeah. will raise him from the dead as he goes through the pain, as he goes through the this chapter of the cross. So he's trying to hold on to the story. But interestingly enough, Jesus himself incarnates, embodies this human need, absolute human need for community. Because the mm -hmm. whole story of Gethsemane is Jesus wanting his friends to grieve with him. Right, yeah. To stay awake and watch with him. And I find that very moving to this idea that God himself took on humanity so deeply that he took on this, in his own chapter of greatest loss, took on this profound need for community. And then yeah. this is where I think for your audience who are all grieving and and processing loss, I do encourage them to find community. And this maybe is one of the great gifts of your podcast, Amy, is you're giving them at least a virtual yeah. you know, community, but I would also encourage them to try to find an embodied physical community and not to think that they're going to be able to somehow uh, get through this process just isolated on their own, yeah. because that's just not the way we were wired. And it's not what, what we see in Jesus. Jesus having full knowledge of everything, knowing that it's going to work out in the end. It was still a horrible thing that he had to walk through, lonely and painful. And knowing that everything was going to be great in the end, it still didn't take away that pain in that moment. Well, I, I think it's actually important. I think evangelicals have this, especially evangelicals have, I think, an almost inhuman understanding of Jesus in some ways that we think, yes, Jesus was God, but that he took on humanity with all of humanity's state of being in this now and not yet of uncertainty. If you read the gospel accounts of the passion narratives, it's not a computer. He's not like he's got a program. He's like, oh, I know this is all going to work out. So whatever, it's fine. He's sweating blood. He is struggling to say, not what I will, but yours, father. He's struggling. He's taking on the full human dimension. Of, of uncertainty. And now how does he do that as God and human? That's part of the great mystery, but it is not less human. I think we can find in Jesus somebody who we should be able to relate deeply to. He is in pain and grieving yeah. and struggling and wrestling with doubt in a godly way. And he's feeling forsaken, right? My God, yeah. my God, why have you forsaken me? So those are all real parts of how Jesus was fully human. That is such a great, great thing to point out, Curtis, because I think you're right. We often look at struggling as being a weakness that is not good, but Jesus fully struggled, fully felt the impact of that struggle. And the fact that we can identify with him strongly in that, just as when we are feeling confident and joyful is such a great reminder. I would love to talk about deconstruction. You've mentioned some interesting things in your Good Faith podcast. I, you know, you've mentioned some examples in the Bible of what deconstruction kind of looked like in some biblical accounts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. If I just deconstruction, we mean we are trying to figure out 
hey, have we got the story right? Or did we get the story? Have we gotten the story wrong? That is the truest uh, and most biblical definition of deconstruction, which is the Bible is rife with that. The people of God are constantly struggling with, did I get the story right or did I miss something? Did I get something wrong? Just look at the disciples, right? They've carried a story with them about how Jesus is going to lead them to power, to prosperity, because he's the Messiah and he's going to kick all the Roman oppressors out. And then suddenly those Roman oppressors who he is supposed to kick out have put hung him on a cross. That required a massive deconstruction. What does that mean? And then Jesus is raised from the dead. That's another massive deconstruction that happens. And then Jesus imparts the Holy Spirit on them, which is a a new experience that they've never had before, which is another massive deconstruction. So the Christian story, the meta narrative, the big story is constantly full of deconstruction in the sense of, wow, Mm. this story is bigger, more mysterious, has more dimensions and unexpected twists than I realized. So we should, at a very deep level, expect the Christian life of growing closer to Jesus and growing closer to being pointers to the end is going to be full of constant deconstructions. We're always going to be realizing, wow, that story was actually a subversion of the story. It was a, mm-hmm. it was, it was wrong. <laughs> and I have to incorporate this new reality, new experience, this new truth from both experience and scripture that then has to make sense of this evolved now what I've gone through. From that perspective, I think absolutely deconstruction is is an absolutely a part of the Christian story. I think it's when we stop deconstructing, that's actually where we get into trouble. And mm. you can stop deconstructing when you think deconstruction is the end, when you think mm. that that's the conclusion, right? I've got it now. It, this was all a farce. This was all a, a human power masquerading as spirituality. And those all contain elements of truth. But when we think, oh, now I've got it. That was the real story. In actuality, we've stopped deconstructing because mm-hmm. we've just said that deconstruction is the end. And and that's where we get into trouble. That's where that's when we get stuck uh, because we're not actually even in some ways, and this is going to sound, I don't mean to be cute, but we need to actually also deconstruct our deconstruction if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Even the ways that we have been trying to say, oh, that was blank. We need to realize, yeah. well, wait a minute. Maybe maybe I was part of that in some ways. Not to put mm-hmm. the blame on me, but to realize I had my own part of that. I subscribed to that charismatic abusive figure because I needed something. Yeah, I from benefited from it in some way. Yeah, I benefited from it in some way. Again, not to put, not to put the blame uh, or to excuse mm-hmm. the abuse, but if you're further unraveling even that deconstruction, right? That can seem exhausting at one level. It's exhausting if we think the expected state is full and complete resolution. And if we can live, again, like I said, with the reality that we're in the middle of the story, Mm -hmm. of an ultimately hopeful story, then I think maybe we can lean a little more into the sense of, okay, I'm going to hold this loosely. I'm Mm going to trust that ultimately I'm part of a larger story that is authored and told by a God who is good. But I'm going to lean in with a little more curiosity and a little more of a sense of adventure and a little more humility even. Oh, I like um, that. <laughs> and a little more sadness, like all yeah. of it, right? Yeah. That yeah. actually ends up being, I think, a much more rich and truly human story than the one that gets stuck in saying, aha, now I see the truth. Yeah. You know, we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. One, in the end, we will see face to face and I will be known fully. He says, I will know fully as even now I am known fully, right? So even that, such a great way to put it is we, our trust is not in our own knowledge Mm -hmm. of things. Our trust is that we are known fully. And that is a really fundamentally different posture to be. The certainty we have is that God knows us, not that we know God 
fully. Mm, that's a good quote. There you well, go. That's a mic drop. It, it right happens there. to be, have the benefit of coming from the Bible and from Paul. I want to like talk to you as somebody who has been a pastor and who has worked in higher education. What are some of the major losses that you see people dealing with right now, especially those who sincerely follow Jesus and are sort of feeling disoriented, whether it has to do with politics or pandemic or what What have you seen? Oh my gosh, I don't know where to begin. I mean, there's just so many. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's, you know, obviously we've all experienced such loss of being of community and this sort of social distancing and not being together. If, if you live in a situation where that's been true, mm-hmm. I think there's a whole population of Christians that have lost a cultural and political home. So if you have tended to skew conservative in the past, but you're you can't subscribe to where the GOP is currently going, and yeah. in, in, with its Trumpian Christian nationalism, then you're probably feeling extremely homeless right now, yeah, and out of sorts with, and probably in places like Tennessee, <laughs> where you are. <laughs> I think there's all sorts of losses, losses of relationships where people have gone into a set of beliefs whether it's about race or the vaccine, you've lost people to what you seems to us a really dark into a dark place. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I think the losses are, I can't yeah. even catalog. If your initial reaction was like, oh, wow, so many. Yeah, that's important. If we just take a moment at some point to acknowledge it, you are feeling the way you're feeling because of all of the things that you have lost in the last year, two years, five years, and just say, oh, this makes sense. I'm not just feeling a little blue because the sun hasn't been out for a few days. No. Oh, we've lost friends. Oh, I lost that that story that I thought I was a part of. I've lost community. Yeah, it's innumerable. And even just you saying, where do we even start? Yeah. And the sad thing is, I think what makes it worse or what makes it hard is that much of American Christianity, at least evangelical Christianity, again, is just not good with grief. We're just mm-hmm. we, grief is how we process loss, is how we were made to process loss, as we've talked about. And the rituals and practices of grief really matter. Like they are how we live out um, and express grief. There's just so little built in ritual and practice, period. I think in American evangelicalism, but especially rituals and practices that are grieving are, are so rarely found. And so in some ways, I think people are having to almost invent and figure out on the fly or unfortunately on their own sometimes, like, how do I actually grieve? Yeah. Not just as a sort of little mental exercise in my head, but something that is actually worked out in, in an embodied uh, way that is living and practical and practiced. I think you've nailed, I think, a, a real important practice we need to get better at. I want to know what's giving you hope these days for the big C church and local churches, the big C Christian church. What's giving you hope? right now. I know this is going to sound like uh, I'm that Sunday school student that just answers Jesus to every answer, uh, every question that I am finding myself driven more and more to the promises of Jesus' return. It's the conclusion, like it, it is the end that Jesus will return, will raise the dead, will repair the broken, will bring heaven to earth. And we don't know when that's going to happen or how that's going to happen exactly, but we do know that's the end of the story. I just find myself just thinking and viewing more and more things through how does this point me? How does this anticipate that final conclusion? The fundamental anchor of Christians throughout the ages is that we proclaim Jesus has risen and he will return. 
<laughs> again. That is the heart of Christian hope. That is the heart of the of the good news, really. I just find myself wanting to train my mind to think about life and work and everything I go through for how does this act as a little pointer, a little sign and a little image to that final end. And I'll just give you a very sort of f- silly expression of that. I'm not actually a horrible singer. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune uh, worth <laughs> my weight. I, I used to just ex- think, ah, it's hopeless. I can't possibly sing well. I very recently decided to take up singing lessons, not because I actually think I am going to end up on stage somewhere and be able to sing. But it, but it was more just that when I thought about the end, when I thought about when Jesus returns to bring heaven to earth and restore all things, and resurrect all things. It means we will have bodies, we will have voices, we will exist in this world. And at least one picture of what we will be doing, I think we'll be doing many very human things, but one picture of that uh, human thing we are told we'll be doing is we will be worshiping, mm-hmm. uh, worshiping in gladness. I just thought, well, if I really believe that, if I really believe that's the end, is that my body will be raised and I and Jesus will and has returned, I will be resurrected from the dead and in my new body, I will somehow be able to worship Jesus in a way that I haven't before, it would stand to reason that will mean I will be able to sing in a way that I can carry a tune in a way that I cannot now. If we really think that that is the end, that that is the end picture, then we ought to live our lives now as if we were pointing towards that end. I shouldn't, for me to say it is hopeless that I will ever sing on on tune is to deny that story. It is to deny that that's not the actual conclusion that we're headed towards. And so I said I'm going to take up music lessons because I it's it's just is a kind of a, a a way that I am going to defiantly cling cling onto the story, the, wow. the, the gospel story. And so it's awful. It's an awful, painful experience in many ways. But it's my way of, in a very small way, of of living with hope. As I listened to Curtis, I found myself asking these questions. What story have I lost, or did I find out wasn't true? Have I found my way to a story that is true? Kat and her husband Colby thought they knew where the story was going. If you grew up in the era of choose-your-own-adventure books, you know there are points along the way where you can choose option A or B and follow that path to its conclusion. If you choose poorly, you can flip back a few pages and choose the other option in hopes of a happy ending. But we aren't living in a choose-your-own-adventure book. We can't flip back a few pages and choose option A instead of option B. And while my audience here is by and large made up of people who are experiencing grief related to their faith, Curtis' words about losing that story and that community applies to other griefs as well. I lost my mom suddenly when she was only 58. With her died so many dreams I had, and the story I was sure was being written. It has taken me a long time to make sense of that, and I suspect the griefs, big and small, that we are all processing aren't things we truly get over. We pull out the book from time to time, rereading it and adding chapters and attempting to make peace with being in the middle. Curtis mentioned this verse earlier, and I believe it's a perfect one to share again as I wrap up this episode. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was made possible by support from my Patreon community. For a few bucks a month, they help underwrite the costs of this podcast, and in return, they get a few perks. This month, one of those perks is that my sustainer-level supporters will be hearing bonus content from Curtis Chang. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, check out the details at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. If you loved this episode, would you do me a favor and share it with a friend? That is the best way that you can support this show. If you're looking for show notes, you can find them at untangledfaithpodcast.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith or on Twitter as Faith Untangled. See you next week on the next episode of Untangled Faith. Losses that we can put our finger on and say, oh, uh, that's clear. I've lost this. But there's all kinds of losses that are uh, much more difficult to put our finger on.